this is such a familiar passage, this gospel passage. Um, it's one that I often am asked to preach at funerals uh, because it's one of those passages where Jesus emphatically talks about the hope for the future and a place that he's gone to prepare for us, obviously talking about eternal life, a time of being with the Father perfectly. And so it's very comforting at uh, funerals to preach this passage, and, and I do it a lot. And as you know, I've been privileged to, to do many funerals. Uh, but it's interesting because given the context of a regular Sunday worship, we can really explore some different ways this very familiar passage and hopefully help you see it in a little more clear way, uh, and or in a different way, I should say. So to begin with, I, I want to go back a couple of verses because the passage to really understand why is Jesus telling Peter to not be troubled? Um, it's not just because he's quarantined in his house waiting for the coronavirus to be cured. Uh, it's because he has been asking Jesus some questions. Jesus has just given the great commandment in chapter 13, the new commandment, love one another. And then Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he's going to go away. And, um, and th- at that moment, Peter begins to hone in on this go away question and begins to ask his own follow-up questions. Well, Lord, where are you going? And why can't I come with you? And in that moment, as I began to think about this passage, and it is Mother's Day weekend, I began to think about my own children, and probably if you've had children or you have children, you've had that question asked, where are you going and can I go? Particularly when they're young, that's something they want to do. At some point, they become teenagers and they could care less where you're going and would never want to go with you. But when they're children, particularly, they ask that. And you know me, I don't tend to preach Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons, number one, because it's unfair. I've never been a mother. I have no idea how to be a mother. I'm incredibly impressed by the moms and what you do, Um, but also because it, it, it just doesn't fit with who we are. But it seems to me like this particular Sunday, there is a real honing in on that, that subject of parenting that Jesus is doing. He's, he's really spiritually parenting the disciples throughout this passage. And it's one of those rare places where we get to hear from three disciples. It's almost like they, they try to gang up on him. If you've got multiple children, you know this experience. You know, somebody tags in, someone tags out, then the next one tags in, and so on and so forth, around and around and around you go. By the way, I am praying for all the parents homeschooling children. I am grateful to the Lord that we are not at that stage within the quarantine season but Jesus is, he's interacting with the disciples, and isn't he incredibly patient? He, he tells Peter, basically, at the end of chapter 13, Peter, you can't go with me because you're not ready to go. And Peter says, oh, I'm willing to die for you, willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, uh, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And, of course, that's alluding to the passion scene in just a couple of chapters in the Gospel of John, where, where in fact, John, Jesus... Peter will deny Jesus and, um, and then painfully go away bitterly crying. There, there is an immaturity to the faith that Peter exemplifies. And, and just as we as parents try to bring our own children to maturity, um, we don't want them to stay babies all their lives. We want them to become adults, fully functioning adults, self-supporting adults. Uh, so Jesus wants to spiritually parent his disciples Jesus says, in that context, you can't go with me, Peter. You're not ready. As a matter of fact, you're going to stumble. You're going to deny me. But, but 
don't be troubled. And that's the context, actually, for chapter 14, verse 1. Don't be troubled by that. Don't, don't be overwhelmed by that. Isn't it the case that when, when we are in that point of feeling like we failed or, or we think our spiritual lives are in shambles and we, you know, gosh, you know, two months have gone by and I've been in quarantine and what have I got accomplished in this two months? And you're wanting to, to beat yourself about the head and shoulders. The Lord doesn't, tells us to not be troubled. He tells us not to focus on ourselves but on him. Do you notice that? Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, this is not Jesus saying, I'm not God. This is Jesus saying, believe in the Father, believe also in me. Believe in me, the Son. Focus on me when you feel as if you're a failure or that you're going to fail. Focus on me. Jesus goes on to say, I go away to prepare a place for you. And he begins to tell Peter and the other disciples exactly where he's going. He's going away to prepare a place for them. That where he is, in other words, where he's going, they may come also. Now, a lot of ink's been spilled over the years and a lot of songs. My grandmother used to sing to me about the mansions in heaven and the golden streets. And all that is, is probably uh, just a, a way of sort of helping us understand, making it concrete. Um, to be with, in heaven is to be with God wherever he is. To be completely, fully present to the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is going away to prepare a place that we can come be with him, that we can abide, that we can remain with him in the Greek. Now this is uh, an exciting moment for, for, for just the, the ongoing discipleship for, the, for these, these apostles to, to recognize that, that Jesus is beginning to help them understand that he is the Son of God, that he is not simply a prophet, a rabbi, a teacher, but that in fact he is the, he's the second person of the Trinity. It's as if there, he said, the Father's there and you want to get to the Father and I, I'm the way. Focus on me. I'm preparing a way for you to go and be with him. Well, the next, the tag-in student, the, the spiritual son of Jesus, uh, Thomas, chimes in. Um, Thomas, the doubting Thomas that wants to see this, the, the, the scars and put his hand in the wound and all that. Uh, very middle school boyish. Um, here's Thomas, but he asks in a very humble way, in a very mature way, really. He says, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Thomas is confused, and he raises his hand to ask for clarification. And Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way. The way to the Father. The Father is there. I, we're here. The way for you to get there is through me. Again, it's calling the disciples to focus not on themselves and how far they've got to go, what they don't understand, but on the way, the person of Jesus. I am the way and I am the truth and the life. My New Testament professor, uh, Rod Whitaker, said that, that main, the main verb there is the main uh, noun, rather, to focus in on is the way, that Jesus is the way. And then it splits off. He is the way because he's the truth, because he's the revelation of truth about God. Jesus will say, to see me is to see the Father. Jesus has perfectly made us to know the mercy and grace and the loving care and the power of the Father. So he's truth, and it splits off also that he's life. He's the one who can bring life. Ultimately, the ultimate enemy of God is death. And God, through Christ, has brought victory over death. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, as 
Paul talks about the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Thomas asks this question and Jesus begins to say, I am that way. Follow me. Stay on my path because I'm the truth of God and I bring life. Now Philip tags in because he's heard Thomas's question. He's heard Peter's question. Time for the third disciple to chime in. So very unique passage in the scriptures where we get so many questions from so many different disciples. And, and, and so then Philip just asked the over-the-top question. This is the question my son probably would have asked in my context. He says, well, Father, so, Jesus, so is the Father, and that will be enough for us. Oh, really? Okay, if I show you the Father, you'll be satisfied? Give me a break. Now, remind, remember that just a couple of chapters, back in chapter 11, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. But that's not enough for, for Philip. He, wants to, he just merely wants to see the Father and then he'll be satisfied. Well, he doesn't get to see the Father per se. He gets to hear the Father proclaimed, you know, at Jesus' baptism. And, um, and, uh, and, of course, on the Mount Transfiguration, James and Peter and John get to hear the voice of God. But he doesn't get to see the Father. But Jesus says, to see me, Philip, is to see the Father. Have I been with you so long and you still don't realize that I and the Father are one? Not meaning that, that we have, you know, not trying to... Trinity Sunday is still a couple of weeks away, but you know, not trying to meld the Son and the Father together, but, but, but they are in comp- complete unison in the sense of character and the, and, the, and, the, and the way they present themselves. And so, Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus says, I don't do my own works. I don't follow my own game plan. I follow the game plan of the Father who has sent me. He's doing his work through me. Now, this is really interesting and really helpful to us as we, we think about this passage and apply it to our own lives. Jesus says, I don't do my own works. In a few verses, Jesus will make this bold claim that whatever you ask in my name, I will do. And immediately we go, well, Lord, heal the coronavirus. Oh, eradicate it, you know. Um, you know, give me um, the house that I've always dreamed of, you know. Make my children perfectly obedient and wonderful, successful people in their future. And we ask for all these things. But, but notice that Jesus contextualizes his response in verse 13, 14, by what he says here and earlier in the chapter in verse 10. I don't do my own works. I do the works of my Father. Uh, Jesus is modeling for us what we are to become as followers of him, which is to basically seek the Father, to seek to do the will of the Father, and then to execute whatever he calls us to do. I mean, like I said before, ultimately we don't want our children just to simply obey us because otherwise they would remain children all their lives. We want them to hear from the Lord and be directed by him and to, by under his obedience, to fulfill the things that he calls them to do. Whose works do we do? We do the Father's works. And we should seek to ask for those things which are in alignment with the Father's will. Why is it that Jesus says that our works will be as great as his or even greater than his? Well, it's, it's not to suggest somehow that because we're, you know, we're all these believers, two billion in the world now, that because we've got sure numbers, we can, we can accomplish more than Jesus. I don't think that is at all what Jesus is talking about here. I think Jesus is talking about the fact that because he's about to go to the cross and then be raised from the dead and then ascend 
back to the Father, because of that, they will do greater works. Because of what Jesus is about to accomplish on the cross. Well, we want our children to grow into maturity. Um, Ultimately, though, we don't want them to obey the voice of the Father. We want them to learn to hear the voice of their Heavenly Father and obey Him, as I've already said. We want them to be living out in obedience to Him. This is uh, challenging because oftentimes um, we have our own plans for our children, what we want them to, where we want to see them to go and what we want them to become. And, and uh, that's all fine and good, but that's our stuff. That's not their stuff. Um, our job is to teach them obedience and to turn them to Christ, that he might guide and direct them, that they might become what he's calling them to do. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. That the Father may be glorified through the Son. You see in verse 13, that's the key phrase. That the Father may be glorified through the Son. We want to change the world. We want to tell the Lord what to do to make the world better. The Lord wants to change us. Now, by changing us, I don't mean he wants to make us into a different personality and all that kind of stuff. He, he loves us. His love for us is unconditional. He saved us while we were yet sinners in rebellion from him. But he wants to change us in the sense that he wants to mature us. The very thing those of us that are parents want for our children. We want to see them mature, to grow up into the fullness of Christ. We want God to change the world. I, I'm always struck by blind Bartimaeus. I think he's one of those, those, those unsung saints of the church. Maybe we'll start a church called St. Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus is such a great example of faith. Jesus comes to blind Bartimaeus, who's a beggar, and, and here's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And what does Jesus say to Bartimaeus? He says, Jesus says, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And I preached this back in seminary and I said, you know, if I was Bartimaeus, I would have said, Jesus, I want you to take up a collection for me and I will have enough money to retire from begging and live in luxury the rest of my days. Jesus could have done that. But that's not what Bartimaeus prays for, is it? He says, Jesus, I want to see Bartimaeus doesn't ask Jesus to change the world. He asks him to change himself. And so should we. Now, years later, Peter, that immature disciple in John 14, has become a leader in the church. And he's writing a letter that you heard Kim read from in 1 Peter chapter 2. We can't go into that today. This is not where I begin the second sermon. But I do want to point you ahead and I want you to see that, that Peter, who's now become a mature follower of Christ, has understood that, that this is what the Lord is doing. He's, he's not so much preoccupied with changing the world as changing us, his people in the world. As Peter says, to make us a kingdom of priests to his God. And so Peter, writing to a church that's suffering many hardships, modern-day Turkey is where they were, and, and um, under persecution, what does Peter say? Peter says, put away all malice, all evil intent for other people, and deceit, 
and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in salvation, that you may become mature. It's that same theme. God wants to change us. Now, Peter will go on to say that we're to be a kingdom of priests. Whatever positive image you have of a priest in your life, whatever they did to enhance your life in Christ, to point you to Jesus, to, to bring about any kind of a blessing, Peter says we're to be that. And he's actually echoing Exodus 19. That we're to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation unto God. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with a priest that is malicious and deceitful and hypocritical and envious and slanderous. You see, Peter is saying, people of God, the Lord has a, a, a vision for your future of what you'll look like as mature followers of Christ. He wants to change you that he might change the world through you. And it all comes back to focusing on him, that we might become mature followers in Christ. To all the mothers and all the spiritual mothers, I have a dear aunt who never had children, but she is like a second mother to me. And I know there are many of you who are spiritual mothers, and there are many of you who are mothers. God bless you. To all of us who are parents, we are praying for you. But may we all see that in this season, as in all seasons of our lives, the Lord is seeking to grow us to maturity, that we might live into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own purpose. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.